This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street Components with over 800 street fitments for handlebars, bar mounts, clip-ons, brake pads, chains and sprockets. Check out renthal.com. Well, on today's Paddock Pass podcast, we're going to look back at the Grand Prix of Emilio Romagna and... To be honest, it's all done and dusted now. France has its first ever Premier Class World Champion. And uh, myself, Steve English, Neil Morris and David M, we're going to guide through the review of Mizano. And let's be honest, we're going to talk an awful lot about Fabio Quattraro. Neil, what can you say about 5-0 Quattraro? Sorry, Fabio Quattraro. <laughs> uh, allez le bleu. Um, I'm, I think I've exhausted my French already and that's quite embarrassing considering it was one of my New Year's resolutions this year to become semi proficient at speaking it so uh yeah i really have uh, lagged behind where my my stated goals but uh yeah um great weekend for fabio great weekend for um liverpool and uh, great weekend for i think uh, us steve yeah uh, m- it must hurt you as a liverpool fan to say allez les bleus um uh neil because you know obviously les bleus uh, play on the other side of town well, what hurt me was actually standing after uh, I was watching Quadrao's uh, victory celebrations, trying to grab one or two members of uh, his team for an interview while uh, the game was on. And I kept getting these uh, messages from my mum and from a friend with videos of each goal going in, just thinking, I can't believe I'm missing this. Um, yes, so uh, yeah, I've uh, been able to bask in the kind of warmth that comes with beating your great rivals 5-0 in uh, the days since. So all's good, all is rosy with the world. I, I I used to live in um in fact I've lived in both Liverpool and Manchester and um the train between the two was quite interesting because uh, on the one side on the one going one direction it was all what is it uh, Heisel whenever it was 87 or something and the other one was all Munich 60 whatever it is so obviously they're all very friendly and uh, charming and um uh, and and lovely lovely people these football fans Neil, what's more impressive, Quattraro's season or David trying to backtrack on his football knowledge there? <laughs> I think it's going to be David right there, yeah. I mean, he's mentioned Formula One in the last three or four pods in a row, which I think is probably the most impressive thing of this year so far. But uh, Dave trying to sound down and hip with the kids, talking football is also something to behold. What up, fellow kids, Dave? That's right. I love the football, me. Hell yes. Come on, you Tottenham uh, Tottenham City. <laughs> uh, look at this. He's, he's, I think David doth process too much about his lack of football knowledge. We obviously don't have a resident QPR fan, Adam Wheeler, on today's show. Adam's on motocross duty, obviously coming close to the end of their season now as well. But uh, I'm going to ask you both a question, and it's just about Fabio. What was your key moment of the year for Fabio? So, Dave, I'll start with you. Of the year, that's a really difficult one. Actually, I think the the the, the moment of the year, probably in the uh, probably the key moment of the year was Assen FP two when he had a shocker, um, and uh, he stayed calm. He said in the championship conference after the race, uh, he was explaining like the big difference between this year and last year was his ability to stay calm, to not get flustered about things. And um, Assam Friday, bad day, things not going uh, going his way, stayed calm. Uh, the next day, starts on the front row. Sunday, wins the race. Um, uh, he said that for him, that was a really, really big thing because he taught himself to be calm. But teaching yourself to be calm and actually being able to put that into practice in the heat of the moment is two separate things. And so getting that immediate reward of practicing being calm on the Friday, starting on the front row and then winning on Sunday, that um, it, it, it's such an incredible reinforcement that I think sort of like summed up his his season. And what about for you, Neil? Uh, I have to say um, the doubleheader in Austria was probably, um, I think, just confirmation that Fabio was 
I mean, what we saw in the first half of the season was really impressive, but I think his two performances in Austria showed that even at somewhere where the odds were stacked against him and it was really difficult, he still had absolutely what it took to to not just um, limit the, the kind of damage at a track that wasn't good for Yamaha, but just to take the fight to them in circumstances where you thought he had no right in being there. And I remember particularly the second Austrian race, the Austrian Grand Prix, before the rain came. I mean, Fabio was just brilliant in that, in that uh, race. I know it sounds kind of strange to maybe point to that. I think he finished seventh when uh, when it finished because of the, the rain and stuff like that. But um, I just thought the way he carried the fight to Banyaya and Marquez at the front of that race, some of his late breaking feats into turn three were just unbelievable. Um, and I thought it just displayed all the characteristics that has taken Fabio to this championship this year. Fighting qualities, aggression, um, consistency, ability to keep his head, calmness. I thought um, I thought uh, those two races were the moment I certainly thought, yeah, he's got this. Yeah, the uh, Andre Dovizioso said afterwards because we were asking, you know, so w- what's his strong points? You can see his data, and what Dovizioso said was uh, where he's really the really special thing that he's doing is breaking. Um, his ability to break is just amazing but not just brake because when you're braking you can't turn the bike but Quattrara manages to brake very late very hard and still uh, and still turn the bike and that's what has made the difference and you I mean yeah Austria was a fantastic example of that because he was making up so much ground on everyone else on a clearly you know the, the bike was clearly underpowered but it didn't matter because he could brake so much later that he could make up all of the time to you know to, to the Ducatis and everyone else um, yeah, that was it. Was just very, very impressive to see, and uh, yeah, it really makes you wonder what they're going to do next year. Yeah, there was a nice little package that um, I think Dorna put together after that race, where they said Fabio Quartararo's basically having his own overtake of the season contest. <laughs> there was like three moves in that race alone where you just thought, "Wow, that is really quite impressive." Um, so yeah, I think um, I think that I think. Um, some people in Yamaha said that Mugello was a real key moment, you know, Banyai crashing out and he fought with Zarco. Um, coming away from Mugello, I think his race time was so much faster than the previous years. Um, that was another big, big moment, I think. But um, yeah, I think one of the keys basically is just being Fabio's ability to perform well on his bad days. You know, bad days have been, with the exception of maybe Aragon um, and Herethry had the moment with his uh, his arm pump. I think the bad days have been third places and that's, that's how you win a championship, as we've said many times in this pod. Yeah, because what I was going to ask you, David, was one of my moments of the season, obviously, was in the aftermath of Hereth and the reaction to the arm pump he had then what we saw in Catalonia when he had obviously his problem with his leathers these were two moments where really the season could have gone either way from he could easily have gotten frustrated you could easily have seen a big sea change and instead with both of those moments he was able to calm himself down and make a step forward and this has been one of the big things one of the big talking points all the way through this season about Fabio yeah absolutely I mean the, the just the way that he approach the, the way that he approaches everything is just you know, amazing. He has been incredibly calm, incredibly focused, really, really focused. I mean, we've discussed this uh, in the past as well about the fact that he is, um, uh, there was all that drama in the garage next to him, you know, with Maverick Vinales. Um, uh, and if you think of like Saxon Ring and uh, Assen and how that all played out and all of the things that went on there, uh, and Austria as well, you know, Austria won. Um, what happens? A complete mess. Uh, Vinales ends up getting basically sacked by uh, by um, uh, Yamaha, and yet Fabio's no problem at all. Just like completely as if nothing had happened. Had no no effect on, on on him at all. And I think that's been really that's been the most impressive thing about it. Well, let's move on to the weekend just gone and the Nolan Grand Prix of Maiden Italy and Emilia Romano. Uh, there, I was close. I tried it for Adam. I tried it for Adam. It failed miserably. But uh, let's go to Mizano too, Neil. And uh, what was your moment of the weekend from uh, from Mizano? Um, I think my moment of the weekend, Steve, was 
uh, Friday afternoon where we had FP4 and then Q1, just because it was, um, I think, really the only moments of the weekend where we saw Quartararo and Banyaya just going <coughs> at it. Uh, the two strongest guys in the championship this year. Um, we had uh, a wet track, which was drying. I think um, they were okay to run slicks in those sessions. And what you could see was Banyaya setting the benchmark times repeatedly and Quartararo um, almost goading himself, goading himself on to go faster. We know that those are probably his uh, his weakest conditions. Um, and uh, just seeing him try and raise himself without doing anything too stupid or taking too many risks, um, I thought that was pretty cool to see. Um, and uh, obviously, Banyaya went through Q1 into Q2, and then Quadram didn't manage to do that, and that caused him to uh, start from 15th on the grid, at which point we were all thinking, this is desperate. It's, uh, it's going to be a bit of a disaster. But I think it was uh, quite symptomatic, quite symbolic. Uh, not symbolic, but quite... Um, I mean, it was just a, it was a snapshot of a season, wasn't it? Um, adversity thrown at him, but he kept his head and uh, managed to fight through it. Yeah, I thought it was actually probably one of the most interesting sessions we've had all the way through the season. Like you said, Neil, everyone was just finding that bit of time in each lap. And I thought it was really fun just to sit there and watch basically everyone try and chip away. And I thought then obviously whenever you've got Q2 where you put in Peco, Rins, Quattararo, Bastianini's obviously gone really well at Mazzano earlier in the year. There was a lot of riders all expecting to get through. Juan Mir was in this as well. He ended up 18th on the grid. It showed just how big of a challenge it was going to be at Mazzano for everyone, David. And that's pretty similar to what we've always seen whenever we've had these back-to-back rounds or two rounds at the same track. Yeah, I mean, the, everyone gets faster. What I, what I really think, um, Q1, Q2... Uh, what you really saw in FP4 that Fabio was so quick there. Um, that was really, really, really impressive. But then he said on Saturday, um, he also saw that Ike Lakawona and uh, Pekka Banyaya were so quick and he knew like, okay, this is going to be really, really difficult. Um, he still gave it an incredible go in, uh, in Q1 and it was... I wouldn't quite say unlucky because I think Lekwona and Banyai were obviously faster, but he was so much, you know, he, he was clearly the best of the rest. He gave it everything. These are the conditions which he absolutely, absolutely detests. And yet he managed. He managed them and he was quick in them. So uh, the, the fact that he managed to improve his riding, improve himself um, in these conditions which in which he's no good, that I think is the most impre- one of the most impressive things. Neil, just a quick question for you before we move on to Dave's moment of the weekend. Do you like the jeopardy of Q1 into Q2 and just having those two transfer slots? Uh, yeah, I do. I think it's a good, um, I think it's just a way to see a weekend progress. Um, obviously, back in the day, it was just uh, the Saturday, basically Saturday afternoon was a qualifying session. Um, what happened before there didn't really have any bearing on it, but I like the way each session is almost incentivized. It's not obviously good for, for riders because it deprives them of maybe 10, 15 minutes of setup time in each session because they're having to go and post a fast time. Um at the end of each free practice session, um, with the exception of free practice four. But yeah, I think it um, it sets it up nicely. It adds a bit of jeopardy. And um, yeah, I think it's probably the best of the qualifying formats that I can think of, really. It's also, a in, in this specific case, on a drying track, uh, or when the track is changing, then it can be a real advantage to actually be in Q1. So if you can get out in Q1, you saw that with Pekka Banyaya. He went out and he understood what the what the conditions were doing, what the track was doing, how the track was dry, was drying, and managed to really, really exploit that. Um, so th- there are conditions where actually being in Q1 is a good thing. Uh, it may cost you a tyre, it may cost you effort, uh, but it also means you have a better understanding of the track, you're up to speed, um, you can push harder, you can push early uh, if need be uh, and really uh, take advantage of the conditions so there are uh, and it really adds an extra dimension exactly as 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 neil said and david what about you what was your moment of the weekend well my moment of the weekend was a moment that we didn't get to see but which he talked about uh, or which fabio quattararo talked about um uh, in the press conference afterwards in french saying uh, he'd woken up on sunday morning at five o'clock and taken a, a you know peeked out of the uh, uh, peeked out of his motorhome to see if it if it was raining or not because that was 
for him, it was crucial. He knew that if it was dry, he could come through the field and actually score a bunch of points. Uh, he said afterwards he reckoned he could. Uh, he was capable of a top five. Well, you know that he managed that, but a lot of people crashed out in front of him to to help a little. Um, but the thing is. Um, and to an extent, it's also like part of winning the championship is also having getting the rub of the green. It's just being lucky in in those few times when it matters. Uh, Fabio has been incredibly lucky with the weather this year. Uh, all of the winds, whenever it's been dry, he's just completely dominated. He's been he's really he's been a really important and dominant factor at most racetracks. Um, and then when it's wet. Uh, or if it's properly raining, he's okay. He's perfectly fine. You know, on a wet track, he was uh, he was fast enough. It's in those sort of half and half conditions that he's really, really, really struggled. And we haven't seen that uh, in a race very often. A couple of times, um, and he's still come out of those uh, the, the, those races quite well. So uh, if it had been raining on on a Sunday, it might have been very, very difficult. He lost all of that pra- uh, track time uh, to as did everyone else to to the conditions on Friday. And Saturday, but it didn't matter. We've raced here sort of uh, for what five weeks earlier. Um, it meant that they had the bike ready to go, and he was able to uh, to really sort of go out, score as many points as possible in the hope of wrapping up a championship. Uh, or, well, uh, he went out to make his job as easy as possible at Portimao. In the end, he didn't need to because Pekka Banyar crashed out. Yeah, it was interesting that you mentioned that, Dave, because uh, I managed to catch up with Lynn Jarvis after um, the race and um, the, the, some of the title celebrations had just got underway. Um, and he was, one of the interesting things that he mentioned was uh, was exactly that, how, how Fabio has managed to stay calm, um, which wasn't always the case in the past, how he has maturely been able to analyse things and how that is in some ways reminiscent of uh, Valentino Rossi uh, through his career. So, uh, yeah, take it away, Lynn. Yeah, no, yes, definitely, yes. Yeah, he's definitely calmer now. He's more rational. He understands that just getting emotional doesn't actually bring you anything. It's a, it's a, it's an, um, a release of frustration, <laughs> but you don't gain anything from it. Eventually, it's better that you stay calm. Yeah. You analyze what's gone wrong, and you know we've seen that. Uh, if I compare also a little bit to Valentino and uh, Maverick in this type of case, um, Maverick also sometimes very emotional and he would go from highs to lows. Um, but if you looked on the other side of the garage, no matter what happened to Valentino, even though he has a burning desire to win throughout his career with us, he never really got angry, you know, in the box. He always analyzed and say, okay, that was not good. Anyway, there were some good points. The good points were these, but the bad points, and then he would analyze them and then use that. We could work on that and go forward. And, and I think that's a kind of approach that Fabio has really taken this year, and um, and it's a lesson also to maybe other riders as well, to other uh, younger riders as they come through. Um, but it's not something you can just do instantly, unless you make your own path and your yeah. own errors. Yeah. Then you don't really learn. So I think that you know, again, full credit to him for learning from last year and turning it to good this year. Some really interesting stuff there from Lynn Jarvis. And if you want to check out that interview in full from Neil and Lynn, go to patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast and join us on the extra tier. So for $3 a month, you get lots of additional content in Coda. Neil sat down with Kevin Schwantz. That's up on the Patreon. And uh, obviously last weekend, he sat down with Lynn Jarvis as well. Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on- and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. 
Neil, obviously, Mizano weekend, we saw Fabio Quattararo crowned world champion, but what was your big talking point, your big takeaway from the weekend? Well, I guess uh, the big takeaway, Steve, has to be Fabio Quattararo's weekend itself. Um, it was obviously a weekend in which he was crowned uh, champion, Yamaha's first MotoGP world champion since uh, 2015. Um, the first Frenchman to win a MotoGP or Premier Class title in history, which is uh, quite remarkable. And um, also the fact that he's just uh, the sixth youngest uh, champion in history. And when you look at the guys uh, ahead of him on that list, I mean, Fabio is in a very, very, very select group of, you know, great company, all-time greats, essentially. You know, I think only Marquez, Spencer, Stoner, Hillwood and Surtees were were younger uh, when they won their first um, uh, champion. And I thought it was just a... It was an interesting weekend. We've, we kind of touched a wee bit on it um, before the ad break there, but just how Fabio dealt with a, a difficult weekend with high stress, high uh, high stakes. And he, he just came through it um, as he has done most challenges this weekend. Um, I thought um, his, his ride, like he was basically before all the action towards the end of the race happened with Bagnaia crashing, Oliveira crashing. He was on, play, he was on course to get, um, I think, fourth or maybe fifth which would have been a pretty impressive result coming through from 15th on the grid. I think he overtook uh, nine riders on his way there, um, which, you know, is uh, is quite impressive in itself. And, um, yeah, he had the added bonus of, uh, of taking away the crown when I don't think anyone really expected him to because Pekka had been so, so strong all weekend. Um, just a continuation of his excellent recent run. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it was... Uh, it was a performance that was mature and um, it was just impressive seeing how he dealt with that adversity once again. And another weekend that had lots of banana skins. Neil, you mentioned Casey Stoner there as well. That's quite a good comparison as well for Fabio because Casey obviously wasn't a 125 or 250 Grand Prix world champion. He was just in the Premier class able to, to get those championships. He was a rider as he was coming through the ranks, was obviously very highly regarded, a factory KTM rider. He was factory Aprilia then in the 250 class, but never quite able to get across the line and win those championships. Fabio obviously came in as probably the hottest property any of us have seen come into the paddock he was a two-time CEV Moto3 junior world champion he was a rider that was expected to be a superstar Qatar's first Grand Prix he looked every inch of it the first half season he looked like he was ready just to basically do what Pedro Acosta did for much of this season but from that point on kind of went off the rails a little bit got into the premier class and instantly really adapted well to bigger bikes and was was really quick is is Casey an apt comparison for him um, I think in, yeah, maybe in a, in a way Casey might be, yeah, just in that his, you know, Casey's riding style, I think that the absolute, you know, it was best suited to a, a MotoGP machine, um, but he took to the MotoGP machines with a similar sort of way as, as Quadraro did. I mean, I think by the end of Quadraro's first preseason, he was second fastest in the Qatar test at the start of 2019. Um and um but you know Casey did challenge for I think one two five title and the more, the two fifty cc title in twenty uh, two thousand and five with Danny Pedrosa. Um Quadraro never even got close. Um in the in the junior classes, yes, he had a good half season in his first year Moto three, but then he went missing for essentially three and a half years or three years, I guess. And it was interesting in the, the press conference afterwards he said there was a moment in his final Moto two season, I think it was in the Argentine Grand Prix, um, and he qualified so badly, something like twenty sixth, twenty seventh, that uh 28th, thank you, Dave. Yes, he was with the speed up team. Um, and basically, he said he was so far back in the grid that he thought that the, the safety car was actually ahead of him on the grid. And he just thought, you really need to get this together. Otherwise, you won't be here much longer. Um, and he'd had a, a tough start to that year. Um, I think the speed up had changed chassis, oh, sorry, changed uh, suspension supplier, I think th three times or two times. He had three different suspensions basically in the space of one preseason. Uh, it was just a, a bit of a mess. And uh, yeah, it was in, in real danger of just uh, becoming anonymous. Um, but um, yeah, from the next race, I think we started to see signs of, of the talent and, and he basically peaked just at the right time in Moto2 to secure a seat in MotoGP. So, and then he's just never really looked back. Dave, what about for you? What, uh, what way do you assess the year for Fabio? I, I, it's been an incredibly successful year. And it, I mean, the way that uh, it's sort of been 
coming. It's you. You could see it, it building. You could see the way that it had been building in uh, from 2019. Um, obviously, made an incredible impact in 2019. Really uh, pushing Mark Marquez hard a number of times towards the end of the season. Uh, coming close to his first podium in uh, at Jerez in well, what was it? I think his fourth race. Um, you could tell. You could tell he made an impact, but there was something still missing. 2020, he starts off with two wins, goes missing a bit, wins another race, um, and was sort of a bit up and down. I think uh, a bit of that was also his um, uh, the the bike. You know, the, the the 2020 Yamaha was a completely new bike and very very sensitive. It needed to be just right. Uh, when it was just right, it was amazing. When it was not just right, it was really really difficult. And then. Fabio made a step forward and the bike made a step forward. And together, I mean, like, you know, Fabio Quattararo basically eliminated his weaknesses, which is an amazing achievement as a, uh, as a rider. I think what we've seen from Fabio on the bike this year has been super impressive. And we talked a little bit about how he stayed calm as well and how um, that has been integral to his on-bike performances. Um, speaking to a few people from Yamaha, during the, the title celebrations on Sunday evening, I was kind of struck by the impression that he's made on um, the team as well. I mean, Fabio moved up with, I think, his daddy guy from the Petronas team, as well as Diego Gubellini, his crew chief, uh, Tom Mobont, his um, best mate and kind of, I guess, helper, right-hand man, um, and Eric Ma, he is uh, his personal manager. And I think, you know, he's got a, a very small core of, of, of an inner circle with just a few people, but they're all people that he trusts inherently. And um, then Jarvis was saying just how impressive Gubellini and the data technician are. Like he thought, wow, these guys are really, really good. They really know what they're doing. Um, and uh, it just seemed that Fabio has a really strong social aspect as well. He's really able to bind the team together. Um, I spoke to Massimo Marigali and he said he hasn't seen a rider who is able to bring a team together, make people smile, make people laugh. Um, just kind of help the mood even in tough situations um, he hasn't seen someone be able to do that like Fabio has done this year since um, you know since Rossi um, first came into the team um, and you know I think that was quite important because Yamaha had got to the stage at the end of last year with Rossi Mario Finel has mentioned at the start of 2021 how there were essentially two teams within the Yamaha factory team it was Rossi's team and Vinales' team and um, it does seem that with Fabio coming in there hasn't been much ego he's been humble and I think that that has really helped the team just perform to a really strong level. Um, I spoke to his um, suspension technician from Olens, and he was saying that even just a simple thing like anytime he won and Vinales wasn't on the podium, when they were taking the photos in the garage afterwards, Fabio would be like, well, bring the other side of the garage over as well have them in the photo. You know, this is a, this is a team game. It's not just my side of the garage against them. It's like bring everyone into this and I think that that sort of attitude um, has endeared him to Yamaha has got the absolute trust of Yamaha um, and um, I think it says a lot about Fabio's social skills as well which is a, a really important part I think of uh, MotoGP racing yeah I mean Mark Marquez is famous for this as well. You know, Mark Marquez does everything with his team. He, you know, he eats with his team. He spends all of his time uh, with the team. Up until 2015, he was sleeping in the GP rooms, which are these base, you know, like uh, uh, cubicles basically with a bed in. Um, he didn't need a motorhome because he was spending all of his time in the garage anyway. You know, he wasn't. He was never actually in his uh, uh, in his bedroom, and it wasn't until. Uh, the Nieto family who uh, owned the GP room sort of sided with Valentino Rossi that he said, all right, no, I'm not going to do that. And he got a, um, uh, he got a motorhome shares with his brother. Um, so it's not, even then he still spends as much of his time as possible with his team. Uh, and it seems like the, the, the Fabio Quattararo does this as well. You have to build this team. You, uh, I mean, everyone says this, you know, we win together, we lose together, but, Saying it and living it uh, are two very, very different things. It's very difficult. It's very easy to start sort of, you know, pointing fingers and blaming people and all the rest of it. And it's very, very difficult to actually uh, take it, 
work together. Um, you know, if someone does something wrong, you just have to accept it because you know that sometimes you can do something wrong. Uh, so it, it's difficult to actually cope with that. Uh, but the way which um, uh, Fabio Quartararo has done that has been has just and been also, outstanding. I and think that's what's helped him win. At the end of... 2020 I mean you look back at the end of last year and it was it was an absolute nightmare he left the Barcelona Grand Prix which I think there were six races left after that he had won that and um, it was going to a couple of racetracks where you thought okay there's a double header at Aragon that could be difficult but he's good at Le Mans he's good at Valencia um, he should have been good at Portimao but he just I mean the season just completely fell apart he had a crash in Valencia it was just nowhere basically and you know didn't have any he went out with a whimper essentially and um i think a bit was made of he, he meant to a psychologist at the end of last year um but i, I interviewed fabio a f about a month ago and he said that no that, that wasn't like a key moment he said that the psychologist gave him some tips to stay cool which have been useful but it just seems more that him and his kind of close inner circle identified what was going wrong from a personal point of view and and Fabio thought about it worked on it and has been able to put it into practice and I think that shows real intelligence because you look at someone like maybe his teammate at the start of this year and that just with as the experiences or basically as the years have gone by he hasn't quite been able to control that or whatever um, but you know Fabio had pinpointed it thought about it acted on it and put it into practice. And to do that at 22 years old, I think is uh, is quite impressive. Let's just look at it as well for going forward, because obviously we've seen some one-time champions over the years. There's been 10 in the Premier class from when it started in 1949. But when you look at Fabio, do you think is this season a perfect storm as well? Or will we see a lot more championships? Because obviously you look at this year, Marquez is recovering from injury. You look at say, on the other side of the Yamaha pit box, everything that's happened. Franco Morbidelli is obviously going to be his teammate going forward. And Franco had his injuries this year. You expect him to be a lot stronger next year. Marquez should be back a lot closer to full fitness. You'd expect to see, you know, maybe Juan Mayer and Suzuki make their step. Ducati have found something with Bagnaya. Four poles in a row. He's been on the front row for, I think, every race since Assen. He's found consistency for getting the bike into the right window. Obviously, every season is different. But do you expect to see Quattararo able to build on this? Or do you think is this a season where he was just able to get all the ducks in a row, Dave? The, 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 well, I don't think it depends on him. I, I expect him to be exceptional going forward. Uh, but winning a championship, the trouble with trying to win a MotoGP championship is you have to be Mark Marquez. Um, and Mark Marquez is still the best rider in the world. Uh, even with, if you think... Uh, about what he's done he's going to end up fourth in the championship you know I mean I think he's 10 points behind is it Joan Zarco who's, uh, uh, who's fourth at the moment um, you know he is he's doing that with basically one shall we say 1.6 arms uh, and he started off the season with 1.3 arms um, we, we we saw him win uh, 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 Saxon Ring, Austin, obviously tracks where he's dominated in the past, left-hand circuits where he can uh, do really well. Couldn't quite pull it off in uh, in Aragon, came very, very close uh, to a just an absolutely outstanding Pecco by Nia. Um, uh, he wins here. I mean, did he deserve the win? Pekka Banyar crashes out, um, uh, and so it, so he's gifted the win. So it, it's not a win which he dominated, but still he was always going to end up on the podium, and that in itself is very impressive, given the fact that this is a very difficult track for someone who's um, uh, who's got an injured right shoulder. He was also talking about. You know, uh, in the beginning, not being able to sleep, waking up several times a night um, uh, just with the pain. Uh, so I think he's still uh, in trouble. But he's going to be stronger next year. He's going to invent new ways to be competitive again. And that is going to be the biggest obstacle for anyone wanting to uh, uh, win a championship. 
Mark Marquez beating Mark Marquez is not it, it, it's very very difficult uh, Ducati throw it throw it through everything at it Yamaha have thrown everything at it and only managed it once when Honda actually made uh, a complete mess of their bike so yeah that that's the real challenge facing Fabio Quartararo apart from that he's just outstanding yes he, he deserves to win lots of championships the question is whether he can yeah, I agree with you, Dave. I think next year you're already looking at Marquez and what he's been doing the last couple of weeks and thinking everyone's going to have the work cut out in 2022, definitely, because the Honda can't be as bad as it has been this year. It just surely can't be. And uh, and Mark, you imagine, will be will be fitter, stronger, um, and more prepared, I think, with a, a championship plan rather than you know what he, what he was doing at the start of this year. It was just basically, you know, hanging on, yeah, exactly. Um, however... Fabio's 22 years old. Um, you know, Yamaha weren't really able to work on their big weakness or one of their big weaknesses last year, which was the top speed because the engine development was frozen from 21 to 22 because of the uh, the world of the global pandemic. Um, so you have to imagine that the Yamaha maybe won't be losing out as much top speed next year. And, you know, Fabio's still got an awful lot of development to do. At 22 years old, he is far from the finished product. And if you look at the steps that he's made from one year last year to this year, um, you know, there's no reason to think he won't be as strong next year. But I do agree um, it'll take a lot to beat Marquez, I think, next year. Yeah, I mean, the difference is, of course, that Marquez is 28. Um, and so he is closer to the end of his career than than the beginning of his career. Also, he's not going to ride to 42 uh, just because of the injuries which he's already sustained and the way that he rides. Um, you know, he's not going to last that. He's going to be retiring much, much earlier, uh, by which time Fabio Quattararo will be sort of in his, shall we say, late 20s, maybe. Um, and he should still be good enough to actually be competitive. The Honda, what's really interesting, that the, the, the Honda which they debuted at the Misano test uh, after the, after Misano won was completely different, different in every single aspect. Um, what was interesting was that uh, Paul Spargaro said, I uh, can't remember if it was in the debriefs on, on, on Saturday or Sunday, he said, you know, the, the, the new bike's got more rear grip, um, so that should be better. That's going to be a big thing because rear grip has been the place where they've really, really lost out. It's been really difficult for them to actually get any drive and acceleration out of corners. That's going to make a huge difference to uh, uh, to the Honda. It's going to make Marcus's job a lot easier. It's going to make Paulus Bargaro's job a lot easier as well. So that's uh, that's going to be a, a key thing. Um, but it'll be the first year of that bike. Uh, and you know the, the the first year of a completely new bike. There's always things that you run into. See Yamaha, see Aprilia. Um, uh, so we'll see. And Yamaha is never going to get. Uh, it's never going to be a big horsepower bike because. Uh, if you have a big horsepower bike, you start having to, having to change the geometry, geometry, the weight distribution. You have to change the nature of the bike. Um, you start losing some of the characteristics which is which have made it so incredibly fast. We're going to take another break on the Paddock Pass podcast, and when we come back, we'll look back at some of the other talking points from Mizano. Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars are premium race-spec clip-ons available in nine different options, two different offsets, and six different diameters, all developed in collaboration with top-level race teams. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. So, David, obviously, for uh, Neil's big talking point, he wanted to talk the big thing for this weekend, Fabio Quattararo winning the World Championship. What's your big talking point? Uh, I suppose my big champion, my big talking point is the way that um, Fabio won the championship, um, because it was the decision by Ducati to run the hard front, both factory Ducati riders. Uh, I predicted on sort of over the weekend that oh no, look, this is Fabio's not going to be a champion on um, uh, on Sunday. Uh, it's you know the, the odds were stacked against him, and I uh, got trolled very very heavily uh, by surprisingly by a lot of French people on the um, uh, on Sunday afternoon after uh, Fabio did one, and deservedly. Um, but the, the the reason that Fab I mean Fabio was always going to be champion. He this is what he said in the championship comp uh, 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 press conference as well, which is that he came 
to uh, Misano not thinking, well, realising that he could be champion, but not really thinking about the championship because the championship was, uh, you know, the, the championship was always going to happen at Portimao. But he believed 100% that he would be champion at Portimao. Um, so he knew he was going to be champion. The reason that he ended up with, a, with the championship at Misano was because the factory Ducatis gambled on the hard front uh, Michelin. Uh, to an extent, they were sort of forced into it. They didn't really get, get a chance to properly test the tyres in the conditions because we only had these conditions on Sunday afternoon. Um, it had been wet and uh, it had been wet Friday, wet and then drying on uh, on Saturday and then Sunday uh, Sunday morning they had to uh, delay the start uh, of a warm-up already because it had been cold, so cold in the mornings. So there was no, you didn't really have sort of knowledge of precisely the right tyre uh, to use. Obviously, they knew about the tyres having been here a, a while ago. The problem was that the Ducatis needed to run the, or the Ducati felt they needed to run the hard front. Um the, the only tyres which really worked for them very well was the soft and the hard. The soft was just destroying itself too quickly. It, they didn't think they could get it to last the race. Uh, the hard was a gamble. It was also a gamble that it was going to be a little bit warmer. I think Jack Miller said that um, it looked like a master stroke at 1 p.m. when the temperatures were up, but then they got a... There's a few clouds, nothing spectacular, but just enough to lower the track temperature a couple of degrees, to lower the air temperature a degree or two, and that was enough to mean that you had to go absolutely flat out everywhere uh, and especially in the left-hand uh, uh, corners to actually keep heat into the uh, into the tyres. Marquez was chasing um, uh, Pekka Banyaya. Uh, well, at one point, Marquez realised, I can't do this. I'm taking too much risk. He backed off a little bit. It looks like, if you look at the sector times, if it looks like Banyaya saw that um, uh, Marquez was backing off. And so he backed off just a fraction too. Uh, Breaks a little bit earlier going into, to, into turn eight um, on lap 23, I think. And that was didn't quite get enough heat into the left hand side of the tire, uh, left hand side of the tire through through there. Then by the, by the time he came around to turn fifteen, there was not quite as much heat as there had been uh, before, and he pushed it. It washes out. That's it. Game over. And um, Fabio is champion. I think it was interesting listening to Jack and to Peko afterwards and realizing just the kind of tight rope that they were walking on with that tire choice. Um, you mentioned Peko's explanation there. He felt that he had just not, he just not braked as intensely and as aggressively into turn eight. Um, and I actually looked back at some onboard videos. There's about 40 seconds between the left-hander at turn eight, Quirtia, and then the next left at turn 15, the penultimate turn where Peko and Miller crashed. So in the kind of cool, coolish conditions, that's a long time that the left-hand left side of the tire is not being used. And, um, yeah, for Peko just not to be as aggressive in the tournament and then crash because of that. I mean, that is ridiculously fine margins. And Miller said the same thing. He said, um, I think it was the lap that he crashed. He was behind Peko going into turn eight. Thought, you know what? I want to just give him a little bit of a gap. Wasn't as aggressive on the brakes as possible um, because he felt he was actually a bit faster than Peko at that point. So he wanted to brake earlier and then maybe try and catch him up through the the back straight and the, the couple of rights. Um, but him doing that was enough for the left-hand side of the tire to cool down to such an extent that when he pitched into turn 15 the next time it was uh, it was game over so yeah it was uh, it was a it was a gamble a gamble that backfired because um obviously different riding styles different bikes to an extent as well but you know and Bastianini in third had a fantastic race again at Misano running the medium front um and he said that you know there's no issues there for him um and I was brought back to what Valentino Rossi said after this race and also after the Aragon race. Remember Rossi, after Aragon and Peko's first victory, he said he had spent Saturday night trying to hypnotize Peko, saying, you know, don't do anything left field with the tires, you tit, because sometimes you do this. You know, he was like, go, I, I forget the tire choice at, at um, Aragon, it was medium soft or something. Rossi said he sat there saying, choose medium soft choose medium soft don't do anything and he said in this instance he had done the same thing he had said choose the medium front 
choose the medium front, you know, Pekka and Jakadi uh, went uh, went left field, as, as Jack said, and uh, yeah, came back to bite them. Uh, but if you think about it, of the GP21s, uh, Jorge Martin took the medium tyre. He crashed out as well because of this front locking. The reason they, they didn't want to take the medium was because the front locks so much. Um, the uh, Enea Bastini is on the GP19. Now, if you think back to Dovicioso on that bike, uh, he would almost always choose the soft front they always ran a much softer a, a, a much softer front so it looks like one of the things that they have done to the bike the ways that they've changed the bike for this year um is they've moved put a little bit more uh they've, they've moved the sort of like the, the the weight distribution the balance of the bike they've put more weight on the front to get it more grip probably to help it turn more which again we've heard that the gp21 uh, it, it 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 turns that was the weakness of the bike in the past this one seems to turn the way that you do that is you use the front tire um using the front tire loads the front tire more it means you use it up more it means you need more of the front uh, tire you need a you know you need a, a bit more support you need a stiffer construction um so you're you're tending towards the medium and the hard rather than the soft in the past so i think that was the difference between anea bastianini and uh, uh and the and the two the two factory ducatis was the fact that he was on the older bike which worked with the medium bar obviously enough dave you mentioned there bastia neil you mentioned them as well up on the podium again Paul was on the podium as well, so a Repsol Honda one two. Just what can we read into into their results as well? If there's grip, then the Honda works. That's what we can. Re- I mean, that that's basically it. It was cold. Paul is very good in the cold with re- because it creates rear grip. Um, uh, Misano is a grippy track. There's a lot of grip from that surface. Uh, that works well for Paul. The Honda, the Honda lacks rear grip. That's uh, it's as simple as that. Mark Marcus is very good at uh, creating grip because I mean that's why he rides dirt track all the time. This is something which Paulus Bargro said as well in the in the press conference. Next year he's going to have he expects to have a very very busy off season. He's going to spend all of his time you know riding motocross, but especially riding dirt track, which he used to do um, because he wants to get the back sliding again. He wants to get the rear. Uh, he wants to get that feeling for finding drive while the rear is sliding so that i think that's that's the obvious lesson from this yeah i think um paul's two strongest performances this year have been silverstone where he qualified in pole and then finished fourth or fifth yeah fourth um and then obviously this weekend here where he uh, he finished second and you know both tracks were relatively uh, resurfaced relatively recently and also in fairly cool conditions so um, I think there's the that's the correlation there between them and with Bastia I mean Bastia's just been uh, sensational the last two months he's been he's been one of the most impressive guys in the class I think um, when you consider his experience when you consider the bike that he's on um, and how he's achieved his results um, there's just a real combative quality to his riding, which I like a lot. I mean, he had an absolute shocker on Saturday. I think he crashed three times in eight minutes, uh, twice in FP4, then once in FP or in Q1. He qualified dismally, and I just thought, well, this is a it's a ride off this weekend. And yet he he was what eighth with five laps to go, and ends up finishing third. Um, just a quick rundown of his race performances recently. He finished sixth at Aragon after he was eleventh on lap one at Mizano. First, Mizano, he qualified 12th, finished 3rd. Coda, he qualified 16th, finished 6th. And, um, yeah, Mizano, he was 18th on that one. 18th, and he fought through to 3rd. So, I mean, that is really, really impressive stuff from Bastia. Obviously enough, one of the other big talking points, um, we're going to talk about it more in the Moto2 and Moto3 show that's going to come out later in the week. But one of the big talking points this weekend was the decision by the Grand Prix Commission, David, to introduce minimum ages. And it, I think it's quite apt to talk about it on the show where we're obviously talking about Fabio Quattararo and his success. Obviously, Fabio coming through as a double world, uh, double junior world champion. He was one of the riders that came into the paddock at a very early age. He was a, a year earlier than 
than was the norm. And now we're going to see... Yeah, they, I mean, they changed the rules. You know, they they actually lowered the... Because they had previously increased the the minimum age to 16, uh, and then Fabio won the uh, the CEV twice in a row. So they reduced the age for the winner of the FIM CEV Championship. And I think they've also done it for the Red Bull rookies, if I remember correctly. Um, uh, you know, back to 15 again because he was so good, because it was obvious that he needed to be in the Grand Prix paddock. Um, but now, obviously, they've, they've moved it up to, again, to, to 18, or from 2023, we're looking at it being uh, uh, 18 years of old across all three uh, all three Grand Prix championships, and I think also in the in World Superbike uh, paddock as well. Um, they will be, they've reduced grid sizes, which I think is really good, and they've started having meetings with the... Um, equipment manufacturers and with uh, also bike communication systems. They're going to look at communication systems which will uh, automatically tell riders that someone has crashed ahead of them as soon as it happens uh, to, to give them you know more warning uh, and more chance of actually uh, avoiding riders. It's fantastic that they're talking to manufacturers uh, of you know rider gear, uh, of riding equipment, safety equipment. That is, I mean, there has to be a, a, a gains made there because if you think about the the difference that airbags, just airbags, have made, it's it, it's been astonishing. Um, the biggest problems, I think, is, uh, this is just the first step on a long road to safety. I think we're going to start seeing changes to uh, the formats of the uh, certainly in Moto Three, World Supersport Three Hundred, uh, those sort of things. We're going to see different differences in bikes differences in engines to try to spread the field out a little bit more um to try to separate sort of you know the the, the wheat from the chaff a little bit because at the moment it's still too easy to, to to keep up in a slipstream so you end up with big groups and that increases the risks of uh, of crashes and we need to spread the field out a little bit you want all the really good riders at the front um, uh, be, who are just capable of it on sheer talent alone, uh, but you don't want too many hangers-on who are just there by taking insane risks. Neil, obviously, I, I almost got to ask David a question about that, but um, I'm going to come to you to, to finish off the show, and obviously we always look at winners and losers from the race weekend just gone, but who was your big winner from Mizano 2? Uh, oh, there's a whole number of them, Steve. I mean... I'm not going to say a list of them, though. Um, I think I will go with... Um, I've got to go with uh, Honda just because it's been such a desperate year for them. Um, obviously, there's been factors like Mark coming back and not being anywhere near um, physically ready to fight for a championship. Um, but, you know, looking at the performance of Paul, Nakagami, Alex Marquez, it's, it's clear that the bike is not great. But I think... That performance on Sunday gave a real sense of uh, of hope and, and an idea of what those guys can do um, when the bike is right for them. Um, and I kind of just think that this end of season run that both Mark and Paul have been going on um, does bode quite well for both of them next year. I'm not expecting Paul Espargo to necessarily fight for next year's championship, but I think he can be a guy that could be up fighting for top fives regularly um, which was his uh, his goal for this year and Mark is I fully expect to kick on so I think it was a great day for, for Epsilon Honda their first one too since Aragon 2017 um, and uh, yeah much needed uh, yeah much needed boost after a, a pretty punishing season and David what about you who was your big winner um, another manufacturer Yamaha um, because uh, Fabio's championship justifies the gamble they took on him, justifies the decision of moving uh, Valentino Rossi out of the factory team. Um, but also this weekend, we saw Franco Morbidelli have a fantastic first half of the race until he's, you know, the, he lost the strength in his knee. Uh, he proved to be, you know, quite competitive until he suddenly started going backwards just because, you know, he just didn't have any strength left in his knee. Uh, but also Valentino Rossi stepped up. I mean, you know, Valentino Rossi ended up 10th from, I think, dead last on the grid, more or less, which looked absolutely terrible on his, uh, you know, on his last race on home soil and yet he had a very very reasonable race i mean it's you know not a 
not not really a race worthy of Valentino Rossi, but at least we saw flashes of it again. He was capable of actually riding. He did well. He came through. He, you know, he, he was overtaking people. Um, uh, he, he said afterwards himself that he was happy. Uh, you could tell he was happy because he actually threw his helmet away, and he never, ever, ever throws his helmets away. He never gives uh, uh, gives helmets away. Um, so it was just it was just a really really good. Uh, there were hopeful signs for the future in the sense that um, you know Morbidelli showed that he was uh, that, that he was worthy. Uh, there was the championship. There was the the, the, the investment in mo- in in changing that bike in 2020, in bringing the new bike in 2020, uh, polishing it in 21, uh, winning a championship. So yeah, I think uh, I think it it was an exceptional weekend for Yamaha, and it really builds the foundation for the future. Yeah, I think I'm going to choose another manufacturer as my big winner. I'm actually going to choose Ducati, which is obviously a, a ridiculous decision. <laughs> like, it's ludicrous. The Both riders crash out from the factory team. Peko's championship is done. But you know what? Four poles in a row, they know the horse to back now. And then you've got someone like Bestia coming through with another podium. Obviously, he just wishes that the world championship was at Mizano every week. But I think when you look at Jorge Martin this year... I think it all builds quite nicely for Ducati and obviously Peko just gave up too much ground earlier in the year. But I I look at what he's been able to do over a single lap in the last couple of months. That gives me a lot of confidence that he is the man for Ducati going forward. Um, Shout out to Aprilia as well. I thought you were going to say Aprilia actually because um, for the first time ever we had two Aprilias in the top eight which I think is their best result. Maverick Vinales finishing what a couple of hundredths or something or a couple of, or a couple of tenths behind uh, Alicia Spargaro. Um, yeah, it, it also it was a good weekend for them because it, it, it showed that their gamble on signing Maverick Vinales could pay off uh, for all the reasons we've discussed. It might still go horribly wrong, um, but it's clear that he's going to be able to be fast on this bike once he's got a few more um, uh, miles under his belt. What about losers, David? Who was your big loser from the weekend? Well, you know, you were talking about Ducati, Steve. Um, my, <laughs> I, I doubt your reasons for Ducati being the big losers are going to be the same as my reasons for picking them as the big winners. No, the, no, this is this is absolutely true, and also like um, shout out to to Anaya Bastianini. He's just been exceptional. He really is being very, very good. Um, but uh, again, they came up short. You know, they they they've lost another championship. They keep on just coming up short. And even though Pekka Banyaya has been outstanding they gamble on this hard front tire uh can't make it work um that was i I mean i suppose they didn't have much to lose but they managed to have both of their factory riders crash out um uh, and and not finish the race um they were lucky in anaya bastianini scoring a whole bunch of uh, manufacturers points for them um but it was just uh yeah i mean it was just what they didn't need. On the one hand, it you know, all right. So the riders' championship was done and dusted. That sort of settles a lot of things, and it was it was almost impossible impossible for Pekka Banyai anyway. Um, but it was just what they didn't need. And again, they came so close to it with Andrea Dovizioso. They keep on fini- uh, uh, finishing second. They're going to finish second again. And Gigi Delinia was brought in to win a championship, and he hasn't done that yet. Neil, what about you? Who's your big loser from the weekend? Apart from me, obviously, for being made completely like a fool there by David. <laughs> um, I'm going to choose uh, Juan Mir, I think, Steve, because he, I mean, he essentially admitted that uh, the championship was beyond him after the race in Mizano 1. Uh, then he was mathematically out of it after the race in Mizano, or sorry, in Kota. Um, and then coming into this weekend, he was talking about how you know, there's nothing really to hold him back from taking a few risks and maybe going for some good results to end the year in a strong way. Um, I think they had uh, found some nice new uh, feelings with a new chassis that they had brought to the test, which uh, I think they were going to run the dry. And um, obviously they had a kind of updated uh, whole shot device. Um, or sorry, not a whole shot device, a ride height device, um, which we first saw in Austria, but, um, you know, had some issues and, and they couldn't really run it in subsequent races. So they had a new one of those. Yet, you know, Mir just had a, a pretty shocking weekend. Uh, what qualified 18th 
really disappointing, uh, crashed out, I think, on the third lap. He had jumped the start, which is just uh, really un unlike him. I think he did that once before in MotoGP Coda 2019. Um, but, uh, yeah, he crashed, took out Daniela Petrucci on Petrucci's birthday uh, at his final Italian MotoGP race. Um, yeah, I mean, those are all pretty uh, glaring uh, errors there. So, uh, yeah, Mir... It's kind of sad to see, really, that the championship defense is, is is kind of going out with a whimper rather than with a with a roar. Um, and uh, I didn't quite think it would go this way, I must say. Whenever um, we saw some of his mid-season performances, I thought this was going to be a bit more resolute until the end. But yeah, when the you know once the championship really is is gone, you can see that um, just lacks something a little bit of that intensity, that total concentration that he had last year. It's just not really there at the moment. Yeah, I think for me, my big loser from the weekend was probably Raul Fernandez in Moto2. Obviously enough, this was uh, this was a, a lot of points that have gone a begging for him. And uh, suddenly you go to the last two rounds of the year, really chasing it up against Remy Gardner. We're obviously going to talk about that a lot more later in the week on the Paddock Pass podcast follow-up show, where we look at the Moto2 and Moto3 classes. So keep your, keep your eyes peeled for that one dropping later in the week. Um, David, Neil, big thank you for joining us on the show today and uh, looking back at Quattararo's season and uh, the Mizano 2 round. We're obviously going to have uh, a couple of extra shows on Patreon. So go to patreon.com forward slash paddockpasspodcast. And uh, for the extra tier for $3 a month, you're able to listen to Neil's recent interviews with Kevin Schwantz and Lynn Jarvis in full. We also put out uh, a slightly longer show as well just where we look at uh, one of the big talking points from the week so check that out on patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast as ever a big thank you to fly racing and Renthal street for sponsoring the shows and a big thank you to everyone for listening to today's show so until the next time on the paddock pass podcast big thank you from all of us on the team here this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler it was edited by brian burnett Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Clip-ons, brake pads, chains, and sprockets. Sprockets. I actually had it right the fucking first time, <laughs> didn't I? Sprockets. Oh, uh, it's a little sprocket. one. It's like a sprocket, but it's little. It's a wee sprocket. Sprocket. Wee sprocket. Sorry, JP. <laughs>